You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to call in the spirits to gather around us here today. So I call out to the ancestors, to all of those who lived well and died well, Those who bring all that is good and true and beautiful into our ancestral lines. I call out to those people that knew how to live in community and those people that understood the challenges of leading in a good way. Leading not just for the people, but leading in a way that the people could live in harmony with all living things. So I call out in particular to those ancestors to gather around, my own, my guest, and those who are listening to circle around us and to help us, the living, to make wise decisions and to learn from those who have gone before us. So with the ancestors gathering around us, I invite us all to reach down into the earth and to that most beautiful and essential ancestor, the earth. We give thanks to the earth for the wonder of her dreaming and the way in which that dream has manifest life and great diversity and beauty all around us. We give thanks for the possibility in that dream to change and to heal and to transform. We give thanks for the fact of that dream of creativity, of expression, and of love. So we give thanks to the earth for life. We give thanks for the connection and interconnectedness of all life. And we ask the earth to offer up to us the wisdom of manifestation, that we might all learn how to live here in a good way for all living things, to be one with that great web of life, to know our place within that web and let that web Help us to come into right relationship with ourself, right relationship with others, right relationship with our environment, and right relationship with the spirit world. So we give thanks to the earth for bounty, for home, and for belonging. And with our feet firmly rooted in the earth and the ancestors standing round, let us reach up through the heart and the mind, through the sky, all the layers of the sky, and out into the cosmos, and all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you call that power, I ask each one of you to call it down. Call it down into your day. Call it down into your body. And call it down into these proceedings here today. We call in the energy of blessing and the energy of protection, the energy of illumination and inspiration. And generosity. We call in all of the benevolence of our universe and we ask that the wisdom of the universe come to us through this energy into our bodies, filling our minds and our hearts and merging within us with the wisdom of the earth. And may the earth and sky dance within us, that dance of the two great lovers. And from the big love of earth and sky, all life as we know it in form is born. And we give thanks to that energy and let us know that our birth is the birth of that love. And with these energies within us, let us open our hearts and let this energy inspire the spirit of the heart to be present here today and open up the crucible of the heart that allows the fiery passions of the belly to come together with the crystal clear clarity of the mind and to come together in such a way that they do not destroy each other, but instead inspire each other to give birth to that third thing, which is your knowing of your soul's purpose. And may you find in your heart the courage to live it. 
So may we all go forward in a good way here today, bringing our soul's purpose out in some way, large or small, into the world so that those who are coming, the descendants, will have what they need when they arrive. So we give thanks to the spirits for gathering round. And I want to ask that what needs to be said is said here today and what needs to be heard can be heard and that these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. I want to give thanks to those of you listeners who help to keep the show on the air by donating humble and very generous donations every single penny or ruble or lira or actually I guess it's all euros now. But anyway, whatever it is that you are sharing, I give thanks for your sharing. I give special thanks to Aaron and Jessica and Deborah who've donated since the last show. And thanks to all of you that offer of your energy in your questions, in your listening, in your sharing the show, in your discussing the show, in your liking the Facebook page of the show, in linking from your website to the show, all of the many things that you're doing to help the show grow in the world so that the information can be out and we, the people of the planet, can begin to make decisions in better ways so we have better quality decisions because at this point in time of course everyone's decisions affect everyone else profoundly so i want to give thanks to all of you who have been moved in the heart by this show even if it's moved into irritation that's just fine as long as you're moved into action i ask you to please support the show in some way and those of you who can you can go to the whyshamanismnow.com site. You can find all of the shows archived there. You can also find the support button. And you can click on that button and offer any amount of money, large or small. All of it is greatly appreciated because it does pay the bills that need to be paid to keep the show out there in cyberspace for you to find and to enjoy. So thank you all for doing your part to keep the show on the air. And I would like to thank our guest today for joining us, um, Philip Scott. Thank you, Philip. My pleasure to be here. Thank Good you. morning. Good morning. So our show topic today is Leading by Council and Community by Heart. And Philip is a ceremonial chief in the Lakota tradition, entrusted with sharing indigenous wisdom and traditional healing practices with the contemporary world, including the arenas of education, modern medicine, religion, and business. Um, he has walked the native path for over 30 years, learning from traditional medicine and holy people, tribal spiritual leaders, shamans, and elders from various cultures, not only his own. And Philip has been sundancing for the past 20 consecutive years, which in and of itself is enormous commitment and teaching. In addition to directing and teaching the programs at Ancestral Voice, which you can all find at ancestralvoice.org. So, in addition to directing and teaching the programs at Ancestral Voice, which is a center for indigenous lifeways, um, which he founded in Northern California in 1994, Philip maintains a private healing practice, conducts ceremonies, lectures, teaches intensives, and leads pilgrimages worldwide. And you may contact Philip at philip at ancestralvoice.org. So, Philip... As we begin here today, could you just share for us, as you reflect back on your life, what do you see now from this perspective are the one or two truly pivotal moments that changed the course of your life so that you would be the man that you are today here speaking with us? Well, that's a rather profound question. Thank you. Um, I also want to express gratitude before we commence to... Uh, acknowledge your invocation because it's always traditional for me before I 
uh, engage in a conversation to invite the ancestors and the Creator and the Earth to be here and to acknowledge them. So thank you for taking care of that uh, in your own impeccable way <clears throat> before we have our conversation. But I would say that uh, in answer to your question, probably the most profound you know, uh, revelation for me commenced when I was six years old. I had uh, my first big medicine dream, as I call it, and in this dream it was clear that the this world that we live in is only one of many dreams. And that was followed soon after, and by, at the age of seven, by a near-death experience. <clears throat> I was I was born on the West Coast, and uh, my father, uh, who uh, was a neuroanatomist, he was uh, given a job on the East Coast in upstate New York, and so he took the entire family out to the East Coast. And it was my first exposure and experience of snow, because we were down in Southern California. <clears throat> and uh, so it was a sledding accident, which brought me to the brink of death and back, which opened me up so that I could actually see and hear ancestors and spirits in ordinary time. And so that was certainly those two episodes early on in my, my childhood kind of launched me onto this path. <clears throat> and then at the age of 17, I was introduced to the works of Castaneda, at which point, from the interval between 7 and 17, I was actually being visited by ancestors in the dream time. Uh, and they were instructing me and teaching me. So when I was introduced to the works of Castaneda, it filled in a lot of the gaps in my knowledge, at which point, at the age of 17, is when I made a formal commitment to walk the, the Red Road. And uh, many, many years later, um, as my father actually uh, was nearing his death, uh, he shared with me that we actually had Cherokee ancestry from Oklahoma. And, um, <clears throat> but I had already been on that path and sun dancing well before that. Um, so it was never ever discussed in my family, our indigenous ancestry and heritage. Um, but I would say those two uh, pivotal moments really uh, launched me onto this path. And I really didn't have a choice in the matter. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the path is what calls you, that you are not the person that selects your destiny or path, but um, the ancestors are the ones that choose you to walk a particular path of service in the medicine way. Thank you, Philip. Um, I realize I forgot to tell everybody we were live. And I want people who might want to ask you questions to be able to get to us. So let me remind them um, that we are live. So they can Skype through the co-creatornetwork.com site. Um, they can call in at 512-772-1938 or email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org. And I'd be happy to read your questions. Um, and I also want to give thanks to the Society of Shamanic Practitioners um, for sponsoring this show today since we are part of the um, practitioner interview series. So, sorry, I forgot that little part of business. I'm sorry about that. So, Philip, so here you are um, being raised as an American kid and all this other stuff that your culture is not explaining to you is happening. And so you sort it out pretty well, actually, by 17. And then, so let's... 
somehow there's a, a path now from there to how do you end up, given all of this, how do you end up being, how does someone get invited or selected or begin that path of coming to be a sitting chief? How does, how does that happen? Well, that's a, a long and arduous process uh, <laughs> that literally is blood, sweat, and tears. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a path of service, and it's not something that someone desires to become. Um, I think one thing that uh, I know that you and I have you know, had a chance to discuss previously, it's kind of like the same moniker as calling oneself a shaman, right? It's not something that you, you call yourself. In fact, for me, when someone says I'm a shaman, that's a big red flag. For me, it's shamanism and native medicine is a path of humility. And so um, it's not that when I embarked on this path, I had an ambition to become uh, you know, a ceremonial leader in this way. Um, it's really a natural evolution of the journey, and it's where one's elders and medicine teachers and community recognize your gift and your service and it's bestowed upon you in that fashion. Um, but it is a long journey. I mean, in my global journeys and explorations and my conferring with other traditional medicine people, you know, the general consensus is that to become a traditional practitioner of Native medicine or to become recognized as a shaman by a community requires about 10 years of, of, of apprenticeship. And we know that to be the case in terms of our Western allopathic paradigm, that it's approximately a 10-year journey with all the schooling and the rotations, etc. And so I think it's important to, i like to impress upon your readers that um, shamanism and native medicine is a medicine way and requires that level of devotion and practice and tutelage so that you, so for, in my own situation, uh, it wasn't besides just making the commitment to walk the red road and learn the native way, I, I waited patiently and I sought out medicine teachers and I apprenticed with traditional medicine people and <clears throat> paid, <clears throat> paid my dues in that way. Um, and that was a very arduous and long journey. And uh, through years and years of sun dancing, uh, eventually uh, I was conferred with that title and responsibility but it was not something that occurred overnight. Um, and it's also to understand that Native medicine and shamanism is a way of life. It's the way, it's an, it's an experiential uh, conduct, the way that you engage with the world. So it's not just a, a weekend intensive or, or a pastime, but it, it actually infuses every aspect of your life and your thinking and your conduct um, that it's inseparable, you know, from uh, how you live and, and how you breathe and how you walk in the world. Um, so that's, for me, the essence of it, that it was a, a long journey and uh, required literally life and death uh, practices to allow me to get to a place of service, because that's what a ceremonial leader is, is a servant, servant of the ancestors, of the Creator, the Earth, and of the people. We're talking about the essence of selfless service, that you put the people, you put all of your, and what I mean by the people are all of our relations before yourself. And uh, so there's really no place in the heart and the mind and the awareness of a, of a traditional leader 
to be self-absorbed because the people are suffering, the people <clears throat> are looking to you for assistance and guidance, and uh, you know, we, in, in the Lakota tradition, we carry what's called the Chanupa Wakan, which is the sacred pipe. We put the pipe before us, right? The pipe leads. We, we follow behind the pipe. We do not put ourselves in front of the pipe. And the pipe is here to be an instrument of healing for the people. So, essentially, it's, for me, it's the essence of sacrifice and selfless service. So, Philip, several times as you've been sharing this, um, and I, I think the, um, to continue to refer to this, this word lifeway, which I, I personally use and my spell check always tells me I'm you know, not using a real word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really important. Um, and in, in what you've been saying, several times you, you said specifically a ceremonial chief. So are there different kinds of chiefs or different kinds of elders or respected people that would sit in council? There are different chiefs. Um, there are ceremonial chiefs. There are political chiefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of them have a different, are conferred with a different responsibility. Um, and, and they do sit in council, just like there are different warrior societies, right? So in warrior societies, you can also have chiefs. Um, and that can be male or female, right? So there are, you know, it's not gender specific. So, um, yeah, each of these. Uh, chiefs have a different responsibility. Sometimes they can be both. There could be political and spiritual chiefs. It really depends on the tribe. Uh, and do they all sit together in council or on separate councils? Um, they can do both, right? So they can sit on particular councils, right? So sometimes, for example, for our Sundance, we have different chiefs within the Sundance, and we will sit together to discuss matters related to the dance, or related to inquiries that some of the dancers make uh, toward us. Um, we can sit together in the resolution of disputes or conflict. So um, we have different uh, purposes, right? So, And then there are also elders who sit on uh, councils for the entire tribe. Um, so it's a very complex uh, system. But it sounds also somewhat organic and practical, (laughs) in the sense of, you know, responding to the reality of um, a diverse culture that needs to be led, not only politically, but it needs to be led spiritually and in medicine ways and just simple, the basic um, human, practical ways of life stuff. It's highly pragmatic, and I think that's why I find the indigenous models of governance to be uh, so valuable, because they are highly practical, and it does address all arenas and matters of human existence. Um, I think one thing I'd also like to, at least in terms of traditional practices, and and I think this is important uh, to know, that in terms of ceremony, that ceremonies are kind of dictatorship in the best sense of the word, meaning you have a male or a female leader, right, who's the the chief and the principal intercessor. And everything in terms of the ceremony is in alignment with their dream and their vision, and they may be attached to a particular family. Um, So even though there may be other chiefs there, right, we may sit in council, but um, there's, it's not like a whole group of people are necessarily 
necessarily leading the ceremony together, that there is usually one individual that <clears throat> serves as the principal intercessor or sponsor, and then the other chiefs are there in support. And, of course, the intercessor may, you know, but obviously the consulting with the ancestors and the creator and the earth and drawing upon his or her understanding of the protocols of their family, he or she may invite the, the other chiefs for counsel, but again, uh, because they are responsible for the entire ceremony, that they will make the final decision and obviously try to keep uh, all of the other perspectives in mind and heart when rendering the final decision. Beautiful. Okay. So I think you've talked a little about a, a little bit about what it means in terms of responsibility to be a chief or an elder traditionally. Is there anything else you would want to add to that? It's just, I mean, the responsibilities are, um, you may clear the selflessness of it, that you are responsible to the people. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there anything else? Well, Well, and to the traditions. Certainly. One is obviously responsible to the tradition, but we're also any sort of leader or, as far as I'm concerned now, and and this is in any arena, whether it be spiritual or political, um, I personally believe that part of our challenges in this Western colonized world is that the leaders aren't really necessarily connected to the source or to their ancestors. Um, And so uh, the leader is going to lead through one's relationship to the sacred as well. And so in tribal cultures, you know, the, the chiefs and the leaders and the elders are, are also aware of the directives of the ancestors and the spirits. This is um, just for people who may not, I don't know, ha- have a lot of experience with this aspect. You know, even in um, family traditions, shamanically, that, that, the, that the, the leader of the family is not always just the oldest person. But it's it's the it's sort of the oldest person with the strongest connection to the ancestors, mm-hmm. exactly. you know, versus just who aged into being the old guy or girl, you know, <laughs> and that 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 ability to to be connected to the guidance of those who have gone before us is is understood cross culturally as critical to leading. Another example in in ancient ancient China was. You couldn't become the king of everything unless you had a shaman aligned with you and your entourage who had the capacity to speak to the elders, uh, to right. the ancestors. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, right. it's really traditional all over the world. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think that uh, as a result of that communion, right, then the people are being led not just in the ordinary domain, but in the sacred realms as well, that there's an intimate relationship. It's always there between ourselves and the ancestors, which is obviously, I mean, I find that to be quite lamentable in our society today, that, that the leaders, well, there's a lot of rhetoric about that, but you know, whether they truly have a connection to the ancestors or they're being guided in that way. I mean, we look at some of the great spiritual leaders. I mean, yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right? So, you know, here's a man who was guided, um, who had a dream and a vision. And uh, indigenous cultures, uh, in terms of leadership, you require that dream and that vision so that it's not just the immediacy of the human domain that, that we're operating in, 
I also find it lamentable, you know, having done a lot of hospice work, that just because one becomes older does not necessarily mean that one is an elder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there is roles and responsibilities of elderhood that are often forgotten in our Western colonized world. Uh, and not to mention that many elders are forgotten as well, you know, that they are uh, not incorporated into the matrix of a community and at a part of that, but rather they are um, isolated and separated, which <clears throat> is a great loss to the younger generation. So, you know, and that brings us really to community in mm-hmm. terms of how we can, um, you know, how can we effectively function as a community? Because I, I have a motto, um, a saying, which is nuclear families create nuclear explosions. Hmm. And, you know, there's such insularity in, in a lot of our Western dynamics with family that it creates tremendous wounding and tremendous possibilities for enmeshment and projection, whereas a lot of tribal communities that maintain their traditional values and practices, the children are raised by the collective. Right? So the aunties and the uncles and the grandmothers and the grandfathers are also entrusted with raising the children, which allows for the prevention of a lot of potential issues and wounding to occur. Um, and so, you know, we in this culture, you know, having been, uh, you know, balancing my own world here, uh, I experience the development and the maintenance of community to be highly challenging in our culture for many, many reasons. One being that there's such a emphasis upon individuality that um, we, you know, there, the choices of the individual uh, supersede in the, the choices of the group, you know, whereas in a lot of indigenous cultures, there's no I, there's no singular I, it's always in the, the context of a we, you know, a, a journey together, right? You know, similarly, um, one of the other challenges that I see is that, you know, we live in a very disposable culture, and so in every situation, you know, people, are, well, I, I personally believe that we are hardwired for partnership and for community. It's in our DNA, which is, I, I love the Lakota poet, John Trudell, says DNA is descendants and ancestors. So that's hmm. the acronym, right? So in, we are hardwired for partnership and for community. We are social beings. And so we are bringing all of our wounds and our baggage from our families of origin into uh, whatever community we feel drawn to. And as a result of that um, that engagement, our issues and our wounds are going to surface. So a community will bring out the best of who you are, but also it, as a mirror of reflection, allows the things that require our attention and refinement to be healed. But because we're in such a disposable culture, we often will run from those parts of ourselves that we need to heal. So when they naturally and organically arise as a part of being invested in a community, which requires a commitment, um, then you know, people will leave. You know, just like uh, many marriages will end in divorce because the mirror reflection comes up, and all of a sudden you have to look at yourself and take stock of who you really are and look at the wounds and the issues and the fears that are not just yours, but maybe coming from your own families of origin um, for the purposes of healing. You know, so there's tremendous healing that can take place within the matrix of the community, provided you're willing to stay when things will become challenging, because they will. 
uh, as you know, by definition, particularly in terms of communities that are involved with uh, the healing arts, shamanism, native medicine, right? and you know, in in what I've tried to do for the past twenty years uh, of of providing an opportunity for people to come together to pray and to to participate in traditional ceremonies and to build community um, is to provide a platform for healing. And in our cultures today, things are so dynamic. People will come in, they take things, and they leave. You know, so the other challenge that I see happening is a tension between um, the consumeristic model and a cooperative one. Because in communities, in tribes, individuals cooperate. They share. They collaborate. Um, you know, often I see people from, <clears throat> you know, because my altar is open, so people from all walks of life uh, are welcome to come and, and pray and participate. And so I can see those that have been involved in communities before, and I also see those that are quite new to the experience. And so, you know, they may come, they come late, uh, they leave early, they don't participate, uh, share, meaning that they don't give back or help. You know, whereas people that are aware of a more indigenous model will contribute their own energy, their own work as worship um, to the enfoldment of the ceremony. Right? So helping to educate people in a different way that it's not about consumerism, but it's about cooperation and contribution and sharing. So, Philip, it sounds to me that part of what we're also talking about is that there really isn't a leader without community and there isn't really a community without healthy leadership that I they don't agree with that. that they're that they're really inexplicably intertwined and that they 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 synergize each other um mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're living at a time where a whole bunch of humanity is rising up and saying I'm fed up with my leadership and we need to lead in a new way. We need to lead based on other values. And yet at the same time, I also think contemporary people are somewhat um, challenged uh, to find what that might be. So um, let's uh, turn left here for just a minute, and then we're going to come back to community. And, and could you share with us what, what it's actually like to sit on council and make leadership decisions because we've already established that it's not only practical but it's effective mm-hmm. and it and it leads to the development of community that supports the individuals in the community versus exploiting the individuals in the community mm-hmm. okay so this is all good so far <laughs> like yay okay um but I think the thing that's really hard for people to imagine – so I would just say really shortly, in my community, as we made the shift from spiritual consumerism to to a, an actual community who is gathered around a set of teachings and is invested not only in living the teachings together, the life way, but in, in, in supporting the development of a community of people doing that. And so that means I'm not the leader anymore. And right. this was excruciatingly painful process for people. But mainly not because people didn't want to do it and weren't good-hearted about it and didn't even actually have the skills to deal with all the hard stuff that arises. It's because they didn't even know how to imagine what it would be like. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things that you bring to us um, in your ability to speak English and willingness to speak English with us is to share with us what is it actually what does leadership actually look like when you 
lead by counsel. Like what, I mean, like when, when it's time to go sit on the council, what happens? I mean, to the extent that you can share that and not, you know, just so people can understand it would be different. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when you have a question, uh, some kind of query that you bring to the table, regardless of what that is, right? Then your the people that you have entrusted with the leadership, which is not just one individual, but as I said, there's there are many chiefs, right? So we may gather in a circle, and the question is posed to the group, and each each leader speaks his or her heart to the solution that's possible. And of course, they're being inspired and guided by their own spirit and, and the ancestors, etc. Um, you know, obviously, there's, there's a ceremonial protocol to it, which I'm not really at liberty to get into the, the details about. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we just look at the essence of it, you know, that <clears throat> we gather in circle, we cleanse, right? perhaps pray to begin, um, in a lot of the circles that I sit in, I know that there are talking circles and that they have a staff or stick that they pass. So it, it, in, in my situation and, and what I've experienced in other tribal cultures, like you are the talking stick, so you don't need some object you know, to represent that. It's like, well, this person has a stone, so don't interrupt them. You know, it's like each person is given the space to speak their heart. Um, in traditional cultures, which are not democratic, um, but are based on consensus, that means that that meeting may go on for a long time because it's not based on the clock. So if an elder wants to speak for a day about a particular matter in his or her heart, they have the floor. And no one interrupts them. You know, So a consensus process, which is one aspect of indigenous governance, can be quite lengthy. Um, <clears throat> but in a situation where and there are certainly democratic models that are beginning to infuse into indigenous cultures as well, with you know some merit and, and some shadow to that. But in essence, every individual within the circle um, is given a chance to speak one's heart. And then a decision may be rendered, you know, again, if it may be consensus, then everyone has to be in accord with it, or if it is a more democratic process. Uh, you know, they'll agree that um, you know, the majority will rule in this particular case. Right? But whenever you have a democratic kind of governance, you always have the possibility of naysayers, you know, people who will object to the outcome, which is why, particularly when we're talking about the future destiny of a, of a, of a clan or a family or a, a tradition, then, of course, consensus is going to be... Uh, the more desired uh, process. But, um, you know, there can be sometimes time constraints with the ceremony. It's like you have to get back into the, to the lodge or, you know, or emerge from the lodge or go back to the Sundance or, or any of the other ceremonies. And so it may require sitting, speaking our hearts, and trying to arrive at a decision that is amenable for virtually everyone. Or also to say, well, we're going to have to resume this discussion later. You know, so again, there's there's a different kind of time frame, right? So sometimes 
things will not always be immediately solved, and it's held in a much more spacious way uh, because it, it does involve an unfolding of of one's heart and mind. Uh, I, I don't know okay. if that's helpful at all, but no, uh, no, it's very helpful. Um, I have a question though, and. Um... I lived for a while in Seattle, which at the time, and I don't know now, but at the time it was touted for its consensus-style government. Mm -hmm. And my experience of that was that what the result of, of, of that process was a constant flow of mediocre decisions that actually just led to more problems. Mm. And so I'm wondering – so. I'm wondering, but also sort of answering my own question, I'm wondering if the reason for that, even though the, everybody's hearts were obviously in the right place, was because there was no connection to the ancestors. There was no – people were speaking their own personal heart, but not necessarily inspired by spirit or speaking from the wisdom of the ancestors and because the decisions were not very far-reaching. <laughs> And I'm wondering if that's kind of the piece, is that consensus in and of itself, without this larger spiritual, con- um, not context, but practice, mm-hmm. doesn't lift consensus to that place that it um, starts to create decisions that are good for even the next generation. Mm-hmm. Well, if we look at um, the Haudenosaunee people, or the Six Nations people of the East Coast, right, they're credited with... Uh, Essentially, <clears throat> articulating a a vision seven generations, right? so a five hundred year plan, basically. Right? Rather than, uh, I mean, I think that our culture in the Western culture is very short sighted. Uh, we think only again it goes back to a notion of selfishness and independence rather than interdependence. Interdependence in terms of generations. Interdependence in terms of our relationship to the earth and to our, the unseen realm as well. Um, but I think it's challenging for a culture, and, and this is why it's difficult to kind of, I, I don't believe in, in the word integrative medicine, alternative medicine, um, mainly because alternative medicine, if you look at the root word, is to alter the native. And I don't believe that, that you have to alter the native, that in fact it's a complete, elegant system in and of itself. And uh, to take from that is to dilute it. So, uh, similarly, it's also disrespectful to remove something, you know, from a, a system. It takes it out of balance. Right? It's so, like treating um, acupuncture as a, just another modality versus an entire system of healing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so even to integrate something is to take apart from something and put it in something else. And um, you're going to have some serious consequences when you do that adversely. Um, so I think it's challenging because the models of governance within the colonized world have never been based on consensus. So the, you know, if you have an indigenous model, many of which are consensual, because you have the, the awareness of, of a whole, right? So you have a community that is living together, they're breathing together. So, I mean, we use the word community in a rather vague in a loose way, right? So as far as I'm concerned, community is a group of individuals that are committed to each other, and not just remotely. It's not about just a virtual reality. We're talking about an actual one, where people come together to pray together, to 
spend time together, that you watch each other's backs, that you are there for both tribulation and triumph in the person's life. You celebrate each other's lives. That, for me, is community. You get to know one another in a direct and intimate kind of fashion. Um, and you can't imagine uh, walking away from them, right? And so <clears throat> that's the very definition, a different definition of community that we have in our culture. And so to when you have a group of individuals that are completely committed to the survival and welfare of the group, then consensus becomes the norm, and it's, it's not going to, you're not going to make decisions that will fracture the group, but serve to unify and bring solidarity. And of course, as you rightly mentioned, right, if you have, if it is a consensual paradigm, without the connection to the ancestors, there is going to be a disconnection. Um, and so the the they will be more short-sighted, because when you have a relationship to the ancestors, we get into the arena of dream and vision. And dream and vision is not just about yourself. It's about all of us together. So, so when I conduct a traditional humbletcha, or uh, what's called a, a vision quest, um, I will often say to the, the participants that are preparing for this high ceremony that it's not your dream, it's not your vision. It's the vision and the dream the Creator has for you and for the people. So when people go on traditional vision quests, it's, it's a, a ceremony where you receive medicine for the benefit of the whole, not just for yourself. So again, there's always this understanding of, in the Lakota they call mitakwi oyati, we are all related. And so we are, by definition, interdependent. And um, when you go on that hill, the medicine that you receive is not just to serve yourself, but to be, you know, your particular medicine. Because as far as I'm concerned, all of us have original instruction, and it's our responsibility, as as you beautifully and eloquently shared in your invocation. uh, All of us have original instructions, and it is incumbent upon us to remember them not for ourselves, but for the benefit of the whole. And that relationship to uh, the ancestors, the Creator, the Earth, fosters that remembrance. But also being in community. Everyone that you encounter is an individual that's going to help bring you closer to the remembrance of who you are and what you're here to do. And it's not always easy, and it's very challenging, because you may be uh, confronted with a mere reflection in terms of a tyrant. Mm-hmm. You know? But we celebrate our tyrants in this tradition, because they help to uh, fortify your conviction and help to bring you closer to remember who you are. I'm, I'm snickering just a little bit, because my year one class just got that step given to them in the teachings, which is, okay, this is all lovely, journey, 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 but now we're learning the practice of how you receive the tyrant and the whatever in community as a gift, and that this is a required part of this teaching. Uh, so I'm just snickering here a little bit, because <laughs> that's always a challenge to recognize that's actually a piece of the work, of the way. Mm-hmm. So back to what you were saying, though, about the this whole... Um, 
you know, about community. I think just to put this a little bit in context, because I know so many people feel that they're, they, they get into shamanism, they, they establish a working relationship with spirit. And spirit starts to help them and inform their life. Although for many people, it's a very isolating experience because now they have this really big, important part of their life they can't talk to anybody about um, mm-hmm. around them. But I think at the same time, what what you're talking about in terms of community is we're taking this particular piece of this experience and then you're multiplying it many fold, not only just by the number of people in community, but of all of the synchronicities and the the ways that things begin to move exponentially once we start to come together. And, and the piece that I'm talking about is human beings are amazing and I am not – denigrating us in any way that we can be brilliant we are powerful dreamers we're creative we're innovative we are amazing in so many ways and when i bring spirit into my life and my questions and 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 co-create my choices and my path forward the outcome is better than i imagined and i have a really good imagination but when i bring spirit in it's still more. It's, it's, it's better in ways I couldn't ever have imagined. And this is the piece that I feel like you're talking about when that quality of each individual working with spirit is now being multiplied by a community that's moving in that way. Yep. It's, it, it's unbelievable. And you just every time it happens, I'm still going, wow, that is so much better than I imagined. <laughs> Well, even in, within the Christian tradition, you know, I believe Christ said, when two or more are gathered. Right? Mm-hmm. So just like our Sundance, you know, hundreds of people within the mystery circle praying together. That's powerful, right? Now, is it powerful for the individual that's on that, on that hill or, you know, sitting on her blanket, praying and fasting for four days without food, water, and sleep? That's equally powerful, and all indigenous and religious cultures around the world understand the merits of that solitary time to, to, cultivate, to cultivate that communion with the Creator and the Earth and the ancestors, and to fortify it so that it in, actually infuses your life on a daily basis. But when you bring it together, and you bring people together with a common intent, it amplifies it beyond comprehension in terms of the potency and the power. Uh, as long as we understand that the power is not the individual, right? It's it's actually it's like you know Frank Fools Crow, a holy man of the Lakota Nation, would say to become a hollow bone. Mm-hmm. Right? You want to become an empty instrument through which the powers and the love of the Creator, the Earth, and the ancestors can flow through you into the world around you for the benefit of others. So you have a community that sits in circle that becomes the hollow bone. You've increased the size of the bone which allows more of the powers of the love and the creator, uh, the, you know, the, the love and the power of the creator, the earth and the ancestors, to flow through the entire collective. It's magical and amazing, right? But we're also talking about, as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> surrender, right? Because uh, in, in my world and understanding, shamans and medicine people don't hold space. They occupy space like any other human being. It's the ancestors that hold the space. And <clears throat> the shaman or medicine person, and because of their 
fortification of their connection can feel the presence of them and invoke them and invite them to be there, as, as you did in, in your original prayer, right, to call them in. But it's they who hold the space, and they create the container for the magic, right? The people bring their intent, their prayers, to be heard by the ancestors. So <clears throat> the in all traditions I've experienced, the more the individual surrenders. So it's not, I don't talk about co-creation, right? Because the we are creative beings, but we are not the creator. So by humbling ourselves to allow the powers of the universe and the ancestors and the creator and the earth to flow through us, right? Then, then healing can take place. But when there is a, a taking credit for the healing, which I often hear people do in more contemporary shamanic circles, um, that for me is, is, is problematic. Um, <clears throat> but as, as you said, when, when we come together, uh, in commonality, in prayer. You know, I, I think about the Occupy movement, and I certainly acknowledge the, the need for us to redress some of these <clears throat> serious discrepancies in our society and culture. Um, and that's really vital for us to move forward as a society. Um, however, I also see that, you know, when, when groups, you know, a lot of uh, groups will ask me to come and speak to them who are activists, there's a tendency to burn out over time, where there's a fracturing or fragmentation that takes place because the agendas or the ideas uh, begin to diverge. So they came together for a common purpose, and then eventually some of these other um, peripheral ideas or agendas will emerge that dilute the uh, original intent of why they gathered. You know, and so when people are sitting in council, it's important to stay on task. Right? It's like, so let's stay focused on what we're here address uh, and not get sidelined by other you know equally important ideas or issues uh, so uh, that's another piece to consider when people are going to be gathering uh, in circle to discuss matters of great import so Philip there's a listener who is asking if this way of indigenous wisdom council leadership, um, if this structure, in a sense, has been accepted in any way that you know of by mainstream government, I'm assuming that he means U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm familiar with. Uh, if we look at our current political system, um, I would say that um, if we look, the irony, I guess, for me is that if we look at the founding fathers, the original people that helped to draft the Declaration of Independence, there is historical precedent that Benjamin Franklin actually did consult with the Haudenosaunee, that is the Six Nations people, uh, with some of the philosophies of the original drafting of that document. Um, because you know, they have what's called the Great Law of Peace, um, which is a very elaborate oration um, that requires actually days and days to complete. Um, but other than that, again, you know, kind of taking things out of context that we've spoken of earlier, you know, so it's like, mm-hmm. hmm, well, those are some interesting philosophies and ideas. And of course, they didn't understand that they were practices as well. But, you know, so they took some of these philosophies out of context. And try to incorporate them into the Declaration. Um, so there was, 
you know, from at least from Benjamin Franklin's perspective, uh, a merit to some of the indigenous uh, philosophies. But uh, again, you know, we're still talking about a, a document that was embedded in a time of slavery and genocide and oppression, and was was drafted by the oppressors. So, you know, you've got a a uh, political system that was actually forged by a more colonial paradigm. And so I'm not familiar. Um, in fact, I didn't even know that Seattle was trying to do a consensual kind of government. Um, so I cannot say that I know of any, uh, at least Western political systems, that are attempting a, this kind of form of council. So let's talk a little bit here as we're, we're actually almost running out of time, but let's talk a little bit about how your experiences as you, you, you have this experience and now you're bringing that in some way to your own student community or I don't even know if you would consider it a student community, maybe just your own community. How does, ha, has your community evolved to a place where it has its own council or where are, how does this leadership interface then with your community? Well, um, since I have uh, individuals of varying degrees of experience on the path, uh-huh. um, we certainly at this point don't have a council. Because, you know, when when we gather in, in council as the chiefs, right, all of us have a certain degree of experience and knowledge, so we have a common language from an understanding from which to speak. Um, and, and that's kind of the challenge of creating a council, is that you really have a group of individuals of a similar degree of experience or knowledge base or language to be able to effectively guide and uh, the people. Um, so that's why I say for me in this culture, community is a grand experiment um, because again, people are not necessarily invested uh, and committed to remain for any duration of time. So obviously, when you're forming a council, you want to have people who are being that will make a commitment to be there to show up. Mm-hmm and to be invested in the welfare of the group. Uh, if you just have someone who's kind of peripheral and doesn't necessarily understand the language or the experience, having them come into a leadership role may mean that they're going to bring their other agendas with them. Right? Well, and as you said before, if people are leaving the, the process, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. just as things start to come up, they're not becoming the kind of person who would eventually be asked to sit on council if we're just jumping from group to group to group and not moving through that place of chaos and then you know it's sort of like people aren't staying around long enough to get to that place it's like any kind of form of conflict resolution it's going to be uncomfortable and so people have to learn the skill set to be able to sit in that discomfort and to find the possibility of peace and balance and resolution that may eventually arise by the commitment to the process and the journey. So if you could offer one challenge, so I often offer the listeners a challenge, like when I was trying to talk about grounding and the importance of groundedness, they had a challenge to do a particular technique for grounding for a month and get back to me about what changed in their life or didn't. I mean, if you could offer one piece of teaching as a challenge for people to take into their life and mm-hmm. and do it, what would you offer uh, offer people? So I guess my challenge to your listeners is to remain committed to a community, 
to go through the process and to not dispose of them when things get difficult and to remain completely human my mean being vulner being vulnerable to speak your heart and your mind in a respectful and truthful manner um, and not to use the impersonal internet as a way <laughs> to dispose or discard of relationships in your life yeah. uh, I find that to be an extremely disrespectful means and I, I'm actually uh, I'm disconcerted by the degree through which we use electronic media. I mean, it's a wonderful tool, as we're using today, to help spread word and, and unite people, at least in, through ideas and through language. At the same time, uh, I am concerned through how we are using um, social media networking to discard and alienate people from one another. So, you know, for me, communi- community is the essence of our humanity. So, you know, align yourself with the community. Become involved, and as as uh, John F. Kennedy would you know, say, you know, don't ask what your tribe or community can do for you. Ask what you can do for your community. Right? Mm-hmm. What's the service? In, in other, rather than taking and a more consumeristic um, model, uh, embrace the model of cooperation and sharing and giving. Right? That's because the one of the hallmarks of indigenous medicine is reciprocity, giving back. Right? Your community will feed you, and then you can nourish the community as well. So, Philip, if people are feeling like they, they, they want to meet this challenge, but they'd like to meet it with you and your community, how, how would they begin? How would someone begin that? Well, the best way uh, to communicate with me is um, they can either email me at philip, P-H-I-L-L-I-P, at ancestralvoice.org. Um, but I'm a I love to speak on the phone. I like to hear people, um, and naturally, I even like to meet with them more directly. So um, they can also call me at 415-897-7991. That's 415-897-7991. Uh, that's my home office, and they can leave a message anytime. And if I'm here, naturally, I'll pick it up and love to talk story with them. They can also find out about the intensives that I conduct, as well as the ceremonies. Uh, at www.ancestralvoice.org. And, Beautiful. Uh, so those are the, the means by which they can contact me, and uh, I am happy to, I love to talk story with people, and uh, I'm here to serve, so if I can be of any service to any of your listeners out there, please do not have them hesitate to contact me at any time. Well, Philip, thank you so much for being with us here today. It was my pleasure, and I really enjoyed our exchange and our sharing, and I wish you many blessings in your own life and uh, with your own community and for all of your listeners, that they can uh, just remain committed to the process and and to the experience of being uh, together in solidarity with people of common mind, heart, and spirit. And so, Philip, I also want to give thanks to your ancestors for dreaming of a better future so that you could be here with us. And thanks to the ancestors of all of the wise people that you have met along the way that have held traditions and, and shared them with you, that your, your web of ancestors is quite wide. And I want to give thanks to all of those people, those who've been named in today's show and not, and not named. I give thanks to all of the ancestors who gathered around us here today. Thanks to the earth below for the beauty and miracle of life. And thanks to the sky above. And I give thanks to the heart and the spirit of the heart that unites us all. Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining us here today. 
Ahoi, mitä kujoja.